The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Lauren Rublin, Senior Managing Editor of Barron's. Thanks for joining us today for a look at the markets and a conversation with Rick Reeder, Senior Managing Director at BlackRock and Chief Investment Officer of Global Fixed Income at BlackRock. Barron's Deputy Editor Ben Levison also joins us, and we have a lot to talk about today and apparently a lot of your questions to answer. So let's dive in. I want to welcome Rick and Ben, and thank you for joining me on Barron's Live. Thanks, Lauren. Thank you. So, Rick, it must feel good to be a fixed income manager again. The S is finally living up to its name. So across the yield curve, rates are near or over 5%, which is a dramatic change from the past decade. Let's start with interest rates. The Fed has been pushing them up to cool the economy and bring down inflation. But as you said, it's not as simple as that. So tell us what else is at play and how investors should think about all these forces. So, so, and again, thanks for having me. I mean, this is, I mean, I would say it's a, it's an incredibly great time to be in fixed income, a part of fixed income market. That doesn't mean it's, it's incredible. It's easy to generate positive returns with rates moving higher. Obviously, you know, with inflation being sticky um, and growth surprisingly solid after 500 base points of rate hikes, the you know, Fed's still in this mode of leaning if they were to lean one side. It's a dealing with with higher levels of inflation and and meaning they're, you know, I think they still would like to get one more tightening in. I don't think that'll happen in November, but, you know, December is very much on the table. The other thing that people don't talk about is there's an extraordinary amount of treasury debt that's coming to the marketplace. I mean, the numbers are staggering. When people talk about deficits and we talk about the amount of debt that the U.S. accumulated at 33 trillion of debt, but you don't really factor in. That uh, that you know it's got to keep coming out of the markets, and we're getting hundreds of billions of bill supply and coupon supply every every week, literally every week. And if you didn't like this week's supply, you're going to get it again next week. So, you know, those are are pressuring, have been pressuring yields higher. But I mean, it's incredible. You know, what it presents now is an opportunity. You can get, and we've lived for years of zero interest rates in Europe, negative interest rates, Japan, negative interest rates. You can get five and a half, six, six and a half percent yields without taking you know, going out the yield curve, longer on the yield curve, and without taking a lot of beta, i.e., you know, it had to be for, you know, for years, I had to buy a lot of high yield and I buy a lot of emerging markets today, a pretty good environment. You can buy quality, quality income, don't extend much, much out the yield curve, take we'll call much duration risk, and, and clip an awful lot of income in portfolios. That's a pretty good environment for, uh, for fixed income. Let's go back to those treasury issuances. Is this going on forever? How, how do you see this playing out? So, I mean, that's pretty extra. So I, I at one point, my career as vice chair of the borrowing committee for the U.S. Treasury. And I'm, I remember for years talking to Treasury about, um, you know, issuing bills. The, the U.S. Treasury loves issuing bills because that's how you manage the tax receipts of the country effectively. You're not sure, why, you know, how they're going to ebb and flow. And so you use bills because they're short dated and you can tweak them in terms of sizing. And for years, you issued bills at 0% or 1% because the world, 
you know, it was the collateral for the world. And you could issue immense amounts of bills. At, and, and I remember, you know, querying Treasury, why wouldn't we issue longer? And they said, gosh, why charge taxpayers if we can issue at zero? We're issuing now at five and a half percent. And so what ends up happening is you issue at five and a half. Actually, last week, I think we issued six months at, at 560. So all of a sudden, what happens is the debt service in the country accelerates higher. And because of the maturity wow. of the treasury debt being shorter, you know, you create a burden that will be with us until, you know, A, there's a couple of things that have to happen. One, you know, the, you know, at some point, and I think starting the second half of next year, the Fed will start bringing rates down. It has to bring rates down because of the cost of debt service of the country. It, 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 it and defense will lead up all the discretionary spend the U.S. economy, meaning whoever leads the country from here, you know, the burden around the debt service is significant. So anyway, I think I think the economy has to grow. You have to have nominal GDP higher than the cost of the debt. And that's the only way you bring the debt down. But in the interim, we're going to issue an awful lot of debt. So how would you size up the Fed's fight against inflation so far? So I think, listen, I think it's I think people have talked about it rightly that I think the Fed stayed too easy for too long. I think I think monetary policy you know, was a QE and keeping rates at zero went on too long, but they, they did a really good job of, you know, getting rates up quickly, moving in 75 base point increments to the place we got to was, was aggressive and appropriate. And, you know, I, the one thing I will say is today, I don't think they should, I don't think they should raise rates anymore. In fact, I think they could have stopped a little while ago uh, because I don't think the U.S. economy is interest rate sensitive as it was historically for a variety of reasons, which we have time we can get into. But what happens is the interest rate tool is extremely blunt. And what it gets at, it hits very targeted areas like commercial real estate, like the local and regional banks, like um, lower income, because those are people that borrow today. You see that in credit card balances and charge offs growing. So, you know, I don't think excessively high interest rate creates burdens on the economy that are very targeted and create real stress in some places. So I personally don't think they should go anymore. Uh, in fact, I don't think they needed to go as high as they as they are today. But, you know, even with inflation, inflation is coming down organically. And, you know, there are, you know, this was the greatest supply chain shock in history. And what it did to logistics and supply chains, food costs, energy costs with a war was pretty significant. We think inflation, as you get into the beginning of next year, Core PCE, which is the, the metric the Fed follows, we think will be high twos. We think by March, it's at two and three quarters. Core CPI will take a little bit longer. We think that gets under three by first quarter, end of first quarter, beginning of second. You know, as long as, you know, two and three quarters inflation is not a scary number. When we are running at nine and 10 in some parts of the of inflation, which we were, that gets that gets to be, you know, like core goods was running well over 10. But now we're at a place that I think the Fed, as long as growth is stable to moderating, which I think it is, um, and then inflation is getting to a reasonable number, then I think we should count on next year that a Fed that will be on hold and then in the second half we'll, can can start bringing that rate down. And I think they have to bring that rate down per the comment mm -hmm. earlier. We don't talk, we don't. Oh, go ahead, Ben. Well, I was just going to ask, I mean, it seems like every day I get a note in my inbox explaining to me why, if you look at it as like the th last three months annualized inflation, you're, you get, you know, something close to 2%. Or if you take out this number, it looks like it's better. If you put in this number, you know, it's higher than people think it is. What do you make of all these different attempts to sort of dig into the inflation number in this way? Are we better off just looking at that core PCE or and 
and tracking that is really um, what we should be looking at. I mean, I, I think that's dead right. I mean, so, so if you take, let's take three-month annualized, core CPI, three-month annualized is 3.1%. It's down in June of 22 it was 6.9. 3.1 is pretty good, and the trend, like you say, is in the right direction. However, and by the way, let, let's go to core goods. Core goods, and it will strip out aut used autos because that's hugely volatile, and, and we know that's coming down. You can see that through the Mannheim Index. Core goods last three months is negative 0.7%, down from 10.3. So that's in the right direction. Here's the tricky one to your question. Core services, by the way, ticked up in the last in the last month to 5.4%. It's down from said the three month annualized. That's down from 7.6. It's still too high. So to your point, I mean, it, you know, and by the way, there are parts of inflation like insurance, like in this last report, you look at things like health insurance, auto insurance, like boy, it's sticky. So, you know, my sense is we are moderating and the, and the data is all suggestive of this. We are trending to a more comfortable inflation uh, threshold, but it's still, you know, when you look at core services, like, wow, it's hard bringing that down. You know, by the way, the, you know, the idea that we bring it down by laying off a lot of people in the country to hope wages brings it down, I think is the wrong way to do it because those are people get hurt by higher levels of inflation, like energy, food costs, service inflation, healthcare inflation. So we're moving in the right direction, but your point is well taken. It's still a bit elevated. I just think the trade-off of being a bit elevated on inflation, as long as it's in and around that three or now under three in aggregate is, uh, as opposed to taking millions of people out of work, I think is the right, is the right balance. Well, if you suggest that inflation is coming down organically, perhaps we can get away with not knocking so many people out of work. I think that's the right thing. I mean, so can I throw one last thing, which, which wraps around yeah. the question before? The only way to reduce the debt in this country or make it less burdensome is nominal GDP has to be higher than the cost of the debt. That's the only way it works because that's how you delever an economy. And, you know, Italy couldn't do it for years because they don't grow nominal GDP faster. But what is nominal GDP? It's real growth and it's inflation. So meaning if we had, let's just say we had 2% real growth and let's say we had 2.5% inflation, you have nominal GDP, you add the two, you get 4.5%. Let's say the cost of the debt gets down to three-ish. All of a sudden, you're starting to work your way down on the debt. But let's just say it goes the other way. Let's say inflation goes, we deflate, the debt becomes a bigger problem. Uh, and or and or and then we're not going and or the cost of the debt stays too high because the Fed has to keep raising rate. That is a problem. That is that is a problem. So you don't want no inflation for a variety of reasons or deflation. Obviously, that's that is by the way, look at what China today is going through the price pressure in China. They are actually deflating. And, uh, you know, that's not the place you want to you want to be in today. So we're heading toward the right place, it sounds I, like. I think so. I mean, I, and by the way, I don't think it's I don't think it's miraculous. Like people say soft landing is like uh, is like hitting the middle the middle spot on the dartboard like we, it's so hard to do it you know you have an economy at 70 percent services it's not like it was in the 80s where you had a commodity oriented heavy you know heavy energy reliant i mean 70 percent services and 70 percent of the overall economy is also consumption so you you know you tend to have an economy that is much more stable service economies don't really go into recession um, you know, unless you have a pandemic or a financial crisis, they tend to be amazingly stable. And so I, you know, I've always said I call the U.S. economy the polyurethane economy. It bends, it flexes, it adapts. It's pretty unbelievable, and I think you're going to see that again. And I, and I just think if I were the Fed, you know, I would, you know, keep the rate here for a while, watch the data, and my senses, the economy will will do uh, will uh, will generally be okay. 
I feel encouraged just listening to this. <laughs> oh, before we go on to Ben, who's going to talk about some companies reporting earnings this week, I just wanted to ask you about the stock market. The stock market's had a pretty good year minus the month of September. So why are stocks rallying in the face of such higher yields? Hello? Oh, it sounds like we might have lost Rick. <clears throat> I'm here. Oh, you're there. Oh, okay. Yeah. The question is, why is the stock market rallying in the face of higher yields? Oh, was that to me or to Ben? No, that was to you. Oh, sorry about that. <laughs> sorry. That's okay. okay. So, so can I, can I, no, yeah, no, I'm thrilled because I want to, so let me explain that so that I think it's extraordinary. Here are the technicals in the equity market. And, you know, so today the authorized buyback of stocks is about eight is, is year to date is about 800 billion. The IPO calendar has, you know, with some of the recent deals is year to date about 20 billion. So you get 800 billion of buying and you have 20 billion of selling of IPO. The, con the converse of that is when you look in the fixed income market, I talk about you're getting almost four to 500 billion a week of treasury supply. And, and so I've never seen in my career a more distinct technical dynamic between equities and the bond market. And so days that stocks, you know, you get what, what looks like a tough risk environment, you realize if, and by the way, that authorized buyback versus IPO, then you take 401k, you take general wealth creation, and people have to buy, it just put a certain amount of their salary into equities. So anyway, first part, I think I've learned in my career, technicals matter more than fundamentals, certainly in the near to intermediate term. And then, which I was about another, Ben could talk about, the, you know, the earnings are pretty good. Top line, you know, if you have nominal GDP that's operating at, I mean, gosh, it's been surprising, but in the third quarter, you're, you're going to get numbers that will operate at 6%-ish nominal GDP or even real, actually, in the third quarter is going to be very high. So you've got good growth. You've got margins that are holding up better as companies that have done a nice job of, uh, of managing their cost structure. And then, you know, obviously the big one being the seven stocks, uh, including the ones around reshoring AI that are, are such big market caps that are, uh, that have been, you know, driving the market higher. So a combination of those, but I think the one that people underestimate is technicals are unbelievable in, uh, in bond in stocks relative to bonds today. Ben and I like to talk about technicals a lot, so good to hear that. So just one more question, then we're going to go on to Ben. Rick, I wanted to ask you, we don't talk much about the Fed shrinking its balance sheet. How does that play into this whole discussion? It's a big deal. I mean, I, you know, it's, you know, particularly around the time that the Treasury is issuing so much debt. That <laughs> you have this um, this dynamic of, hey, you're raising rate, you're draining liquidity, and the Treasury is offering a lot, offering a lot of debt every week. So the combination of factors have been pressing rates higher. In, in fact, I often would argue that people underestimate the balance sheet because of the way modern finance works. Interest rate is a pretty blunt tool. And like I, we talked about, you know, companies, the big companies spend on CapEx don't really use interest rate today. They fund through free cash flow. People have locked in their mortgages already. Liquidity is a really big deal because that's that gets at a tremendous amount of who's of you know the amount of of purchasing that can take place you know without getting too technical the fixed income markets are tranched and um you know they're different uh, you know who owns the debt the the equity the mez the senior becomes uh is pretty complex today but when you change the liquidity it changes how that that mechanism that flow of funds through the system takes place so 
Yeah, I mean, the reducing the balance sheet is a big deal. Like I say, I think the bigger one today is just a sheer amount of issuance, but it is, again, contiguous to them raising rates and, and shrinking the balance sheet. Well, we could talk all day about this. No, it's, it's amazing. A lot, by the way, a lot of the stuff is underneath the surface. That doesn't, you know, it's hard to see transparently, but there are a lot right. of things coursing their way through the system today that are, that are contributing to these things. Yeah, good to talk about them. So I want to turn now to Ben. We've got a couple of big companies reporting earnings this week. Ben, let's take a look at Johnson & Johnson first. Company reports on Tuesday. Sure. Uh, well, it's been a tough year for Johnson & Johnson. Uh, you know, stocks dropped about 11%. Um, it's also been the, a big change uh, for them because they spun out their um, consumer health business, uh, you know, Tylenol and whatnot, um, as uh, Kenview. And so this is going to be the first uh, report where we really get to hear about what the new Johnson Johnson is going to look like and what they're expecting from the two segments that are left, uh, it'd be the medical devices and the, and the pharma, um, you know, medical device has been interesting just because it's been under pressure partially from fears around um, the weight loss drugs. Um, and then you have uh, con concerns uh, for Johnson Johnson, both from uh, the new Medicare uh, being able to negotiate over 10 drugs. Uh, Johnson Johnson had a few on that list. Um, plus also they're going to have some drugs going off of patent uh, 2025, 2027, which seems a little bit off, but you know you have to start worrying about that now. Investors certainly will. So really, that's what everyone's going to be paying attention to. I think the commentary, if they came away sounding optimistic, the stock has gotten beaten up enough this year. It's actually underperformed the healthcare sector that you could get a bounce um, off of that positive commentary. It's been a pretty bad sector, so that's saying something. Yes, it has. Let's talk about Netflix, which reports Wednesday. Is there any good news here? Well, I think the good news for Netflix is that it's been such a bad three months. Uh, the stocks dropped 20 percent. Um, and that's off of, you know, they've talked uh, down margins. They already did that uh, back in September. Um, I think people know that uh, because they've uh, switched, they've started cracking down on uh, sharing of subscriptions, that uh, the subscriber numbers could be under a little bit of pressure as they work through all of that. Um, and so now it's just people want to see that uh, margins are holding up better. Um, they want to see that, uh, you know, partially there, there's reports that the there's going to be a price increase on the ad free plans and maybe that helps support revenue as well. Um, and also, I, I think people want to hear what they say about the end of, uh, of the writer's strike and how that's going to impact business going forward. I think Netflix was the one that was perhaps least impacted about the strikes in Hollywood. Um, and, you know, it's going to be all these things coming together more than beating the estimates. The estimates are uh, 349 uh, a share. That'd be up from 310. Um, I think that more than actually beating the number is going to be what helps uh, the stock here to be those margins and subscriptions. That makes sense. All right, moving on, we've got Tesla reporting Wednesday. Tesla has had an incredible year in the stock market. Not such a good three months. What is the outcome? Yeah, I mean, with Tesla, it's been a bad few months, uh, and deservedly so. Their uh, China sales volume had declined. Their margins are getting pressured. They lowered prices again on uh, the the, uh, the Model Y. Um, they, they put out a, a cheaper version of it, and that's going to squeeze margins. Um, and right now, everyone is just wondering, this: the strategy that they had of lowering prices to grow market share seems to have worked through the first part of this year. Um, but now people are starting to worry a little bit about those margins. Um, Dan Ives over at Wedbush has said that the street is, quote, laser focused on the margin performance. Um, 
people want to see that it's that, that it's troughing, that they're going to be able to start pushing margins back up again. Because remember, they used to have margins that were unbelievable for an auto company. Part of the the bull case on Tesla was that you know, they're not a normal car company. They have these great margins. Well, now they have car company margins. Um, so people want to see those margins getting better. And so I think if they can show that both uh, production, they had uh, they missed on deliveries partially because of some work they were doing at some of the factories. If that's behind them and margins, they can signal that margins are starting to trough. That'd be good news for the stock. Still, a lot of people are feeling like the stock is maybe stuck in a range here for a while as it works through these issues. We will be watching that and covering it for sure. And lastly, I'd like to talk about Lockheed Martin. The company reports on Tuesday and defense stocks are in the news. Tell us what's going on with Lockheed. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. The stock has not had a good year. Uh, it's down over 9%. It's even down over the past three months, despite gaining 15% last week. Uh, a lot of this has to do with uh, with Congress and trying to get defense spending approved and, and whatnot. Um, but uh, of course, the, the violence that broke out in uh, the Middle East uh, has, has buoyed them, has, uh, has has lifted not just Lockheed, but a lot of the group as well, because there's just a sense that there is going to be more spending. We are living in a more violent world, a uh, more chaotic world, and so that uh, these stocks are going to benefit. Um, RBC expects the numbers to be good. They're expecting uh, you know pretty decent uh, sales growth, uh, strong backlogs, and they think that there's enough uh, in terms of sentiment to help. Uh, lift the stock uh, after earnings are reported. Let's talk about Goldman Sachs, which reports on Tuesday. Yeah, Goldman's an interesting one. Um, you know, it's it's been a tough year for all the financial stocks or most of the financial stocks. Um, Goldman is part of that. They're down almost 10% this year, uh, down 5.2% over the last three months. Uh, there's a lot going on here, both with, you know, the impact higher rates are having. Um, there's also issues about investment banking. M&A hasn't been great. Um, and you also have the sales and trading business isn't doing great uh, for any broker out there. Um, and so you need to see sort of the, the stock market. You'd want to see that continue to hold up to get the sales and trading business back. You want to see the M&A return. But I think the part that could help Goldman is that it is starting to make changes on this retail bet that it made. Um, it's selling businesses and trying to cut costs there and right size things. And I, I think changing that focus, having that uh, bit of self-help, um, it, it could be good news for, for Goldman when it reports. Um, and uh, so we'll have to see how that does. I mean, so far, the banks uh, Friday was very good news. Um, you know, the bank stocks really did pretty well. Um, even Schwab reported today, they that stock was up earlier um, on some of the good news about the, uh, the cash um, moving around over there. Um, and so if Goldman um, looks like there's a decent background for these stocks. And if Goldman could tell a positive story about the retail business and and all the other stuff, uh, the stock could probably have a good day. Ben, we had a question from Angela, and I want to apologize to listeners. Did we lose Rick? It sounds like we might have. No, I'm so, here. I'm here. Oh, you are. Okay. I am so sorry. I wanted to ask you your take on defense stocks, which sure. Ben had been talking about a short while ago. Yep. So I'd say a couple of things. One, you know, I know we talked about it earlier. The government spend on this country is, is, you know, interest expense is going to be a big part of it. The other big part of it is going to be defense. We are not, as a country, we're not cutting defense anytime soon. And certainly, given the dynamics we've had recently, 
The other thing about defense stocks, they've underperformed this year prior to uh, this recent, uh, the recent developments in Israel. And quite frankly, I think these stocks are pretty attractive today. There are a number of companies, Northrop, Lockheed, uh, et cetera, where multiples are reasonable in their consistent ROE generator. So I think, I think defense is, um, you know, it's a great area to own and it's, I was going to say it's defensive in a number of ways. It's probably a bit corny to say that, but, but the, um, but no, I think that asset class, you know, particularly given its underperformance year to date and some of that underperformance is concern about, you know, we're going to cut defense spending in this country, which is, like I say, completely misguided. All right. I had a question from Angela for Ben having to do with financials and uh, she wants to know the outlook for the banks and what do you make of them? Um, there's a there's a lot of bad news uh, in the bank stocks. Um, they had, uh, had they they've been beaten down heading into this uh, into these earnings. Um, valuations are are very cheap. Um, I, I think a lot of it depends on them saying um, good things about their securities portfolio, which so far I, I think the the news there has been pretty good, and the possibility that we could see an increase in. Um, net interest income going ahead. Um, the problem with the, the banks, though, is that they, they are still are cyclical and they do have a, a lot of regulatory pressures coming uh, from Basel three and, and elsewhere, um, which makes it a, a tough sector. But I think at these valuations, they look pretty attractive. We had recommended um, Truist, uh, uh, I think, two weeks ago. Um, you know, that was a combination of uh, I believe, uh, God, I can't remember who that was anymore. That it was SunTrust and somebody else. Um, but uh, you know, that was another one where you know these self-help stories are great, where you have a, a bank that does have these pressures uh, from outside, but also has a lot of ways uh, to to fix itself. That hadn't things hadn't been going well, but it can cut costs, can um, really right-size things, can uh, get more efficient in certain areas that can help lift the stock. And so we've been looking in that area, and Truist is one of those. All right, Rick, I want to go back to you now and talk a bit about where to find the best opportunities in the fixed income markets. Where do you, where do you see, as, as you say, sort of the best returns with the least amount of risk or volatility? So, I mean, I, you know, I still think today you have to be respectful of, of the Federal Reserve that would like to get interest rates uh, you know, interest rates higher. One of the things that's been interesting is as the back end of the yield curve as the long end has moved up, a number of the Fed officials have said, gosh, the market's doing our job. That being said, that can move around. And I still think they are inclined to see rates, nominal rates higher. And so I think you have to build that into your equation today, at least for the near term. I like owning the front end of the yield curve. I talk a lot about owning commercial paper, that if you can clip six and a half percent yield on six month, one year commercial paper, that is extremely attractive. So we've been doing a fair amount of, the, of that in portfolios. And then things like investment grade credit, US and European investment grade credit, um, you know, same thing. You can clip close to 6% or a bit above 6% in Europe, um, for particularly for a dollar investor because of the cross currency, because you can swap back to dollars. You know, things like agency mortgages have become uh, have become attractive, you know, with the selling out of the bank. So you could build a portfolio today and we run in our unconstrained funds. We're running a 7% yield. And in my career, you've I've never seen this where you can run 7% yield. We run a, we, we own a bit of high yield. Our emerging market exposure is pretty small. And but you can still, you know, get those sort of yields. We buy securitized assets. You know, there's harder as an individual to buy, but things like um, residential mortgages, whole loans, 
and um, you know things like AAA CLOs because of the because of floating rate where floating rate is. So, you know, you marry that all together, and if you can get that sort of yield without taking interest rate risk out the yield curve, as well as um, a lot of credit risk, boy, it's it's pretty attractive today. So you also recently launched something called the BlackRock Flexible Income ETF. The ticker is BINC. What was the rationale behind this ETF? And what do you mean by flexible income? And what do you hope to achieve with the product? Yeah, I mean, the beauty of it is, I mean, the growth of ETFs has been explosive, but they have grown largely through passive and through things like indices. The beauty of fixed income is there, so I was saying in fixed income, there's 68,000 securities. So think about the S&P 500, there's 68,000 fixed income securities. And so your ability to be tactical, take out parts of the index that are inefficient. We talked about the long end of the yield curve today, like why do you need to own it? It's a, you have an inverted curve. You can take out, there are a lot of parts of the index that trade too rich um, for technical reasons because insurance companies buy them or pensions buy them, et cetera. And then just be tactical and, uh, you know, like today, buy a lot of quality assets. So BlackRock Income, I mean, the, the ETF we're doing, Bink, we call it, you know, we're clipping, I think we, our yield today is 7.2% high quality. It's actually about, it's been running at half the volatility of the high yield market of HYG and, and uh, with about 90 to 95% of the yield. So, you know, being able to do that for, for clients because fixed income tends to be, uh, you know, more complex, like I say, using securitized assets that are, you know, AAA assets, but they're just hard to source or create. So, um, so it's become, you know, I think you can see that in the performance with really volatile fixed income markets. It tends to, uh, it tends to be much less volatile and, uh, but with an awful lot of yield for people. Mm -hmm. And you had a question here. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I, I was been curious, just watching how badly um, just broad uh, bond ETFs that uh, that don't take into account uh, duration and whatnot have been doing over the last few years. Is there a, a mismatch with people? You know, we've all bought into stocks for a long run, which makes sense. Companies are always um, increasing their cash flows. But does that work in bonds, especially in a rising rate environment? No. Can you just do bonds for the long run? No. And uh, <laughs> and that's exactly the, the, the right point. So by the way, you think about, I mean, what companies do organically, if you throw off 10 to 12% ROE, you know, return on equity, you know, people talk so much about multiple and, but you think about if you can compound at 10 to 12% ROE and you think about, gosh, I don't know, is the inflation rate going to be two, three or four, but if you can compound at that sort of level, even if you, you can absorb two, three, four turns of multiple and still be in pretty good shape. Like you say, bonds are really different. I mean, you know, the, the treasury issued, 30-year bonds in May 2020, I think those bonds traded 47 cents on the dollar. People are like, oh my God, AAA government debt. You got to be really careful about where you take your interest rate risk, where on the curve you take it. And by the way, you know, they don't compound. It, uh, you know, you think about long bonds at, at, you know, inside of 5%. You know, if inflation moves higher, it's just going to depreciate your, uh, you know, your return. And then if rates come down, you're going to refinance at lower levels. The beauty of fixed income, like I say, and the beauty of getting yield today in an inverted yield curve is, gosh, you can you can build, you can hold equities, let them do their thing. And then and then alongside of it, I can just clip coupon and I can clip yield. And that's part of what I think people should do today. You know, historically, you know, for 30 years, rates came down because inflation came down. Inflation is going to move around. It's going to be structurally higher. I think today fixed income is exactly that. Just buy the income. 
and don't worry about is it is it you know the complement to my equity portfolio if you can clip six and a half six six and a half seven and then you know i've got a portion of my portfolio that that creates yield and then my equities will do my thing will do their thing you can build a really nice balanced portfolio but i think people should think about fixed income in a very different way i call it use fixed income i call it beta free fixed income today you know use it don't use your beta beta tools in in fixed income today you don't need it you don't need the high yield necessarily of any great size and just use your beta for equities or you know for people that can do things like private credit or or structured finance um but i think it's a really different paradigm than than we've been used to when rates just persistently came down it's nice after so many years right yes ma'am oh yeah different i mean it's like I said, negative interest rates. I hope that they've killed that concept for the rest of uh, of our lives. Right, uh, doesn't work. And um, and you know, this is a pretty neat environment where fixed income actually does something for you, and you know, without necessarily having to take take a lot of risk to get that yield. So I want to go to some of our listener questions now. We won't get all of them in, but we'll do our best. Terrence asks, and this is for you, Rick. What do you see as the terminal rate for the federal funds rate? And what is your expectation of R squared or the or R star, excuse me, and that being the neutral rate? Wow, that's such a good question. So my sense is that R star is higher than it's been historically because we're going through a period that's very unique in economic history. One, reshoring is real. I mean, post-war, post-war, you know, we could describe or discuss the relationship with China. But there's a real reshoring that's taking place, and that's you know showing itself in in the, in a bunch of different areas that'll create a higher level of growth, infrastructure spend, the immense amount of spend on climate uh, as uh, climate innovation, it means that my sense is you have a structurally higher growth paradigm than we've had in the past. So meaning that the Fed's terminal funds rate, which I I, I think most would describe as two percent. I think that number is probably closer to, you know, we could debate two and a half to three somewhere in there. By the way, I don't, I don't think it's four, but I do think the terminal funds rate has to be a bit higher than it's been in prior regimes. But I said, I don't, I don't, um, you know, there's a bunch of things going on around demographics that suggest that, you know, you know, demographics, the best indicator of not of growth is demographics. That is globally, slowing particularly in places like china japan and then the other one is ai is going to create a productivity boom i think that we have never seen before so you know i think it's hard to marry yourself to when people say gosh growth is going to be structurally higher inflation is going to be structurally higher there are there are significant events that are going to take place that um you know that that will change or mute some of those and you know i say like it you know invest today for the next year like figuring out the next three years is hard, um, mm-hmm. but I think for the next year you get your arms around the environment we're operating in, which, like I say, is a pretty unique one in time. So we have a question from Robert who wants to know where you see interest rates a year from today. So my guess is, you know, if you know the Fed, you know, I said because of the uh, the cost of the debt service of the country, and you know, we can debate is the Fed, you know, an independent body, which they are. But boy, that drag from the government debt and from the fiscal inflexibility means I think the Fed will have to bring the rate down. And I do think the economy is slowing. Um, you know, I'm doing a presentation on Thursday where I'm calling like, you know, when you drive on the road, it seems flat, but the water actually runs off the side. And that to me is like the U.S. economy. It's slowing. It's hard to see it. 
but it is slowing. And my sense is with the, the Fed will start cutting rate in the second half and, and you know, knock wood, and hopefully that um, inflation is moderating that I think we'll get, I think we'll move the rate down so much from where we are today. So, you know, can we see a 5% or a little higher 10 year over the next couple of months or so? I think so. But then I think as you get in the next year, you know, my sense is the yield curve steepens the Fed will start to cut and that, uh, you know, you could see rates down, um, you know, 50, 75 uh, basis points, you know, more of that coming in the front end and uh, then out the key, then out the yield curve. Mm -hmm. So related to this, Howard asks, how can inflation come down given the amount of debt the U.S. is issuing and the amount of federal of federal spending that we're seeing? So it's a great question. And, and by the way, we I haven't debated this in our uh, <laughs> internally in, in uh, since this morning. Listen, I mean, it's a, it's a great question. I mean, the infrastructure spend is real. The reshoring is real. You know, Larry Fink, our CEO, has been pretty adamant about, and he's been right, that inflation will stay higher for longer. I, I'm completely sympathetic to that. The one thing that I would say is real balance is look at goods inflation that is coming down significantly. And you look at this point that I made about about AI. So if you take, let's take AI to the next level and say, there's a, I think it's a Wharton MIT study that says that 35 to 50% of the jobs um, will be augmented or replaced through AI. That is extraordinary. And so you think about it's so hard to bring down service level inflation. Um, a good amount of that. I mean, we could argue as much as wages. Well, if, you, if you're changing the employment paradigm that significantly, and technology is kicking in in so many places. You look at this, the impact from this GLP-1 and what's happening to obviously the uh, Novo Nordisk, Nordisk, what's happening to Eli Lilly. Gosh, mm -hmm. technology is changing the world so darn fast that uh, my sense is, your point is well taken, that in the near term, we should assume structurally higher spend, real reshoring. But I, gosh, I'm just not willing to marry to that concept for the next three to five years because of some of these other some of these other uh, influences. As you say, think about the next year at a time like this. I think so. I think so. You know, Larry Summers has always been very articulate about this, and uh, you know, saying that you know, and by the way, you know, we look at the Fed dots and they project out two years, three years hence. A lot of stuff happens in the interim. You I mean, look at what's happening geopolitically. How does U.S. China develop? How does Boy, there's an awful lot that happens. And I just think if we can, you know, if we can keep investing relative to the, the trends that are in front of us without putting our uh, without putting our telescope too far out, I think that's the most accretive way to run your portfolios. Well, I have to have you back to yeah. talk about to talk Sorry. about this. All right. Well, one question we had from I, I cannot remember who it was from, but a question about emerging markets. Patricia, what is BlackRock's take on emerging markets? Oh, they're hard. And uh, so, listen, I mean, I think today I'm going to talk about from a, for all of us, I'll start with the debt perspective. You know, if you um, if you assume that China is slowing and the growth is still not bad, but they're slowing and you take the impact on the emerging world when China slows the demand for commodities, the um, the in the intra the interregional trade that takes place on the backside of it. You know, it's it is, uh, and then you take the um, you know U.S. raising interest rates, the dollar appreciation. You know, EM becomes tricky, becomes really tricky. That being said, the emerging market countries are going to are you know having are having a lower level of inflation, generally cutting interest rates. You know, my sense in EM is we you know we like being in higher quality EM, place like Mexico, Brazil, 
Um, we've been hedging our currency because, you know, quite frankly, you you know, with the dollar and, and some of the geopolitical, it's hard to hard to uh, hard to manage that or anticipate where it's going. So, listen, I mean, I, you know, the point earlier about we can clip a lot of yield in the front end of the curve and quality assets. I just need less EM than I have before. So we're our posture is take it more in places like Mex, Brazil, Indonesia, some of the higher quality places. And then, you know, unless you really want to speculate, I think beyond that is is hard to do. You know, on the the equity side, you know, I think it's a, you know same thing about being, you know, where is where is the potential engine of growth? I think Mexico, boy, you think about the reshoring, and without going too deep into it, the discussion around it, Mexico is an incredible beneficiary uh, for a variety and a number of CEOs I talk with that are, you know, like the labor dynamics, like the logistics dynamics. So Mex is a place. And um, that I think is um, is going to be pretty interesting, you know, not dissimilar from debt. I think Brazil as well. But, you know, there there are some um, there's some places there to take advantage of. But, I, you know, like I say, you know, this is an environment where I feel pretty good about you get in the developed world. You get some nice opportunity, particularly in fixed income, but also also on the equity side. So, you know, less enthralled by EM these days. All right. We'll close with a question on the equity market, and I'm going to pose it first to Ben and then to Rick. Rajesh asks, how would the latest CPI PPI data, September employment numbers, 10-year rate inching closer to 5%, and the expectations of another rate hike impact stocks in the next six months? What's your take, Ben? Uh, gosh, six months? Um not sure I've thought out that far yet. I, I know I'm on, on on the record as thinking we'll get a, a rally into year end, and I'm going to stick to that. Um, you know, the, the market got hit very hard last year. I think some of it was anticipation of uh, what we saw, what we've seen this year. Um, but with earnings growing right now, um, the, the market seems to be able to to withstand it. It is cheaper than it was um, certainly at the start of uh, 2022. Um, you, you have this big jump in earnings from a lot of companies that, uh, um, especially the big tech companies. So I think that's enough to propel stocks for a bit. And Rick, what do you say to all this? I, I say the same thing. I mean, so, you know, my, my point about the road being flat, it, you know, it is moderating. Inflation is moderating, again, not in a straight line. And, and you're seeing slack build in labor. This payroll report was strong. But gosh, if actually go and you look underneath the surface, vacancy to unemployment is is declining and um, the quits rates declining the actual income levels are coming off so i think it's a very moderate decline one that'll keep the fed in a place that gosh we can watch the data for a period of time and i agree with exactly what ben said the technicals and equities are tremendous and um you know we think the earnings numbers will be that we're going to see are going to be pretty decent led by you know a lot of the, these these tech numbers which i think are, are solid so you know, I also think the market will do well into in the year end. The one thing I will say, you know, it's actually interesting in the volatility markets. You know, you've had some pickup in volatility, but there are volatility is not that high. We use, you know, through upside convexity, you know, through call options and otherwise you can play it without taking a big outright exposure today. And so we've been doing more of that. But, I, you know, I tend to think equities will um, will do OK, you know, save some major exogenous geopolitical dynamic. All right. I want to thank you so much for joining us today. And you are definitely going to come back and tell us what you see in the future. Appreciate thank it. You. Thank I you. I want to thank Ben as well for your Thanks comments. And I want to thank our listeners. And thanks for your terrific questions. Also, we'd like to acknowledge and thank the sponsor of today's program, Nuveen, a global investment manager. You can find out more at nuveen.com. 
Please join us tomorrow on Barron's Live for Tech Trader. Barron's Associate Editor for Technology, Eric Savitz, will speak with Evercore ISI stock analyst Amit Daryanani. They'll be talking about the outlook for computer hardware stocks. Thanks again, everyone, for listening today. Be well and have a good day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.